Section 5 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Cole. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 1. Book the First. Chapter 2. Left alone. This is what an observer close at hand might have noted. All wore long cloaks, torn and patched, but covering them, and at need concealing them up to the eyes, useful alike against the north wind and curiosity. They moved with ease under these cloaks. The greater number wore a handkerchief rolled round the head a sort of rudiment which marks the commencement of the turban in Spain. This headdress was nothing unusual in England. At that time the South was in fashion in the North. Perhaps this was connected with the fact that the North was beating the South. It conquered and admired. After the defeat of the Armada, Castilian was considered in the halls of Elizabeth to be elegant court talk. To speak English in the palace of the Queen of England was held almost an impropriety, partially to adopt the manners of those upon whom we impose our laws is the habit of the conquering barbarian towards conquered civilization. The Tartar contemplates and imitates the Chinese. It was thus Castilian fashions penetrated into England. In return, English interests crept into Spain. One of the men in the group embarking appeared to be a chief. He had sandals on his feet and was bedizened with gold-laced tatters and a tinsel waistcoat, shining under his cloak like the belly of a fish. Another pulled down over his face a huge piece of felt, cut like a sombrero. This felt had no hole for a pipe thus indicating the wearer to be a man of letters. On the principle that a man's vest is a child's cloak, the child was wrapped over his rags in a sailor's jacket, which descended to his knees. By his height you would have guessed him to be a boy of ten or eleven. His feet were bare. The crew of the hooker was composed of a captain and two sailors. The hooker had apparently come from Spain, and was about to return thither. She was beyond a doubt engaged in a stealthy service from one coast to the other. The persons embarking in her whispered among themselves. The whispering interchanged by these creatures was of composite sound. Now a word of Spanish, then of German, then of French, then of Gallic, at times of Basque. It was either a patois or a slang. They appeared to be of all nations, and yet of the same band. The motley group appeared to be a company of comrades, perhaps a gang of accomplices. The crew was probably of their brotherhood. Community of object was visible in the embarkation. Had there been a little more light, and if you could have looked at them attentively, you might have perceived on these people rosaries and scapulars, half hidden under their rags. One of the semi-women mingling in the group had a rosary almost equal for the size of its beads to that of a dervish, 
and easy to recognize for an Irish one made of flan imtefri, which is also called flan andifri. You might also have observed, had it not been so dark, a figure of Our Lady and Child carved and gilt on the bow of the hooker. It was probably that of the Basque Notre Dame, a sort of Panagia of the old Cantabri. Under this image which occupied the position of a figurehead was a lantern, which at that moment was not lighted, an excess of caution which implied an extreme desire of concealment. The lantern was evidently for two purposes. When alight it burned before the Virgin, and at the same time illumined the sea, a beacon during duty as a taper. Under the bowsprit the cutwater, long, curved, and sharp, came out in front like the horn of a crescent. At the top of the cutwater, and at the feet of the Virgin, a kneeling angel with folded wings leaned her back against the stem, and looked through a spyglass on the horizon. The angel was gilded like Our Lady. In the cutwater were holes and openings to let the waves pass through, which afforded an opportunity for gilding and arabesques. Under the figure of the Virgin was written, in gilt capitals, the word Matutina, the name of the vessel, not to be read just now on account of the darkness. Amid the confusion of departure they were thrown down in disorder at the foot of the cliff, the goods which the voyagers were to take with them, and which, by means of a plank serving as a bridge across, were being passed rapidly from the shore to the boat bags of biscuit, a cask of stockfish, a case of portable soup, three barrels, one of fresh water, one of malt, one of tar, four or five bottles of ale, an old portmanteau buckled up by straps, trunks, boxes, a ball of tow for torches and signals, such was the lading. These ragged people had valises, which seemed to indicate a roving life. Wandering rascals are obliged to own something. At times they would prefer to fly away like birds, but they cannot do so without abandoning the means of earning a livelihood. They of necessity possess boxes of tools and instruments of labour, whatever their errand trade may be. Those of whom we speak were dragging their baggage with them, often an encumbrance. It could not have been easy to bring these movables to the bottom of the cliff. This, however, revealed the intention of a definite departure. No time was lost. There was one continued passing to and fro from the shore to the vessel, and from the vessel to the shore. Each one took his share of the work. One carried a bag, another a chest. Those amidst the promiscuous company, who were possibly or probably women, worked like the rest. They overloaded the child. It was doubtful if the child's father or mother were in the group. No sign of life was vouchsafed him. They made him work nothing more. He appeared not a child in the family, but a slave in a tribe. He waited on every one, and no one spoke to him. However, he made haste, and, like the others of this mysterious troop, he seemed to have but one thought, to embark as quickly as possible. Did he know why? Probably not. He hurried mechanically, because he saw the others hurry. The hooker was decked. The stowing of the lading in the hold was quickly finished, and the moment to put off arrived. 
the last case had been carried over the gangway and nothing was left to embark but the men the two objects among the group who seemed women were already on board six the child among them were still on the low platform of the cliff a movement of departure was made in the vessel the captain seized the helm a sailor took up an axe to cut the hawser to cut is an evidence of haste when there is time it is unknotted andamos said in a low voice he who appeared chief of the six and who had the spangles on his tatters the child rushed forward towards the plank in order to be the first to pass as he placed his foot on it two of the men hurried by at the risk of throwing him into the water got in before him and passed on the fourth drove him back with his fist and followed the third the fifth who was the chief bounded into rather than entered the vessel and as he jumped in kicked back the plank which fell into the sea a stroke of the hatchet cut the moorings the helm was put up the vessel left the shore and the child remained on land end of section five recording by david cole medway massachusetts